It's Wednesday, September 8th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill with me today. Asa Sharma, good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. And of course, you and I can see each other because we're recording this via Zoom, as well as our high-tech audio equipment. But it literally is good to see you this morning. Yes, absolutely. Um, we have a Motley Fool podcast milestone. Um, that'll be later in the show. But uh, first, we have an acquisition and some earnings. We're going to start with the earnings. Coupa Software, second quarter profits and revenue, better than expected. Wall Street analysts were actually expecting a loss in the quarter for Coupa. Help me understand this, because the stock is down about 2%, which is not a lot. But the context is that they reported after the closing bell yesterday, and the stock was up somewhere to the tune of 12% after hours. Did something happen on the call? Like what? What is going on with Coupa Software? Uh, Chris, I think sometimes it can be hard to parse out why investors get enthusiastic about a stock after the earnings release. Then they listen to a call and suss out some type of hesitancy on management's part about a company's future outlook. I think this has a little bit to do with it. The numbers, as you said, were were pretty decent. The um, There was a, an operating loss, but if you look at the adjusted basis, they actually had uh, a profitable quarter. The big story here is that revenues and billings uh, looked great. Revenues were up 42% year over year. Um, I liked that their subscription revenues, which is a high margin contribution to the top line, increased 40%. They had positive operating cash flows, which were in excess of the prior period. If you look at the six months, ended July 31st, so they just reported on the quarter, ended July 31st. But if you if you telescope out the first six months, uh, cash flows were still positive, about um, $21 million. That's versus a use or a cash burn of 32 million in the comparable six-month period from last year. So, on a lot of fronts, I think Coupa did very well. Now, why investors may be having a second look as the dust settles here? One of the things that Coupa is is up against is a little bit of a need to spend on sales and marketing expense to push that top line. That expense really jumped. Uh, in the quarter versus the prior year, and, and has jumped in the six months versus the prior year. That is up more than 50%. So, while we had a really nice jump in that top line, company had total revenue of $346 million. They generated a net loss of $187 million versus a loss of $58 million in the comparable six months period. So, when you start putting this year together, you see that they're really trying hard to, to push that lever. Research and development up nicely. Uh, you want to see an increase year over year, and they've uh, increased that spend to $86 million bucks versus $57 million. Again, I'm giving you a, a six-month uh, view. But all in all, the loss from this quarter, this particular quarter, more than doubled from $43 million in the uh, year-ago quarter to $87 million. Now, what's the, the upshot of this? There are so many companies that we follow, Chris, that are software and software-as-a-service companies. We give them a pass for operating losses as long as revenue is scaling. I think one of the things that Coupa is really trying hard to do 
is to convince investors that they've got a unified platform. What they do is to um, provide business spend management to companies. So they help companies save money in many different areas of spend, like the supply chain, procurement. They also help with payments, treasury management services. Each of these fields that Coupa specializes in is a target for companies that specialize only in that, only in saving money on the supply chain, only in procurement, only in treasury services. So their unified platform is something that the, the company's been moving to for quite a while to convince both its customers and investors that it can be this one-stop shop for back-end office accounting. It's not a business that gets a lot of love or attention from retail investors. And if you've been paying attention for the last couple of minutes, you can see why. It's, it's maybe not the most exciting business to explain. But I think what we're looking at is maybe investors are sobering up to the amount of the losses and the fact that there wasn't more of a lever in that sales and marketing spend for the quarter. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what the next couple of years holds for Coupa because this is it's been public for nearly five years. It was October of uh, 2016 when the company went public, and you know since then, like if you've if you've owned it since the early days of it being a public company, good for you because it's up more than 700 percent from the IPO. But over the past year, I mean, it's it's at about 255 right now. That's down from the high uh, earlier this year. It was close to 380 dollars a share, and it's a 19 billion dollar company so this is the you know the the universe of companies that can look at coupa software and say we think we can do better than they can with what they have therefore we're going to buy them that's a much smaller universe when you're a 19 billion dollar company than if you were say a 3 or 4 billion dollar company so you know you use the phrase they're trying to convince investors that's they're going to need to keep doing that because I don't think, you know, and I and I'm not saying that management necessarily wants to sell the company, but even if they wanted to, you just have fewer opportunities when you're a company of that size. Yeah, Chris, I'm going to translate what you just said into <laughs> um, some very high level investment terminology. Coupa Software isn't a spring chicken anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> And that market capitalization. That's much better than what I said. <laughs> no, uh, but it's true. It's what you're saying is absolutely true. At, at that market capitalization, the company now is is sort of hitting that spot where investors really want to see a little bit of operating leverage, some future path to better cash flows than they've been able to generate. At the end of the day, everything, as as you well know, depends on cash flow. Valuation depends on it. The ability of a company to spend on its own objectives, invest in itself, that depends on cash flows. So I think it's maybe a longer term existential question for the stock chart at this point in time. And and certainly they could can maybe flatline from here, but I'm I'm looking at the chart as we speak and, and what you're saying you know really resonates with me. Companies down from its all-time highs substantially, and it's been a volatile uh, stock over the last two years. Not not just 2021, but going all the way back to 2020. Part of that is COVID-related, but the the visual on this is that investors are really trying to figure out what that future holds for Coupa and whether it's going to be able to fend off smaller attacks. 
and uh, be able to capitalize on new initiatives. They announced an app marketplace. They've got new efficiencies for supply chain management. There, there's a lot of good stuff going on here, but investors so far, I think they want to see more. Let's move on to the war on cash. PayPal is buying Payd, a buy now pay later company based in Japan. This is a $2.7 billion deal. PayPal is mostly going to use cash for this. And uh, I saw a decent amount um, on FinTwit and uh, in the financial media um, making the obvious comparison to uh, Square buying Afterpay. This deal is about one-tenth the size of Square's acquisition of Afterpay from last month. But um, maybe not surprising to see more activity in this space, because we were talking right before we started recording, buy now, pay later really is heating up. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll we'll get to this deal in, in just a second. But Chris, I wanted to second you there. It seems that if you're investing in the payments space, you can't avoid this acronym BNPL, buy now, pay later. This is a market that's estimated variously at $20 billion by 2028, up to $100 billion in the next few years, depending on which research firm you're looking at. Everyone agrees, though, that the growth rate of this market is phenomenal. I've seen compounded annual growth rates pegged at above 20%. That is a fast-growing market. Uh, and just to back up a bit here, if you're not familiar with this phenomenon in the payments industry, it's simply a method by which payments companies will team up with retailers and offer customers the ability to pay on installments. For those of you of a certain age, you'll remember uh, terminology like layaway. It's very similar to this. If you pay as a consumer for a product using buy now, pay later, and you hit your payment installments as agreed, be they three or four, five, six payments, then you won't earn uh, owe any interest or fees. How it works for merchants is they share a little bit of revenue with the middleman that provides the BNPL service, of which there are several. Um, you mentioned Afterpay. There's also Klarna, which is a really huge player in this space, just getting more into the US and their market. In fact, they may be looking at an IPO later this year. Klarna processes 2 million transactions daily, Chris. They've got 90 million active customers. Just to give you an idea of how this space is exploding. Of course, we heard recently that Apple is now enabling buy now, pay later. Affirm, which is another huge player in this space, just to deal with Amazon. So, if you spend 50 bucks or more when you're shopping on Amazon, you'll be able to use uh, a firm to do buy now, pay later with your purchase. So, uh, this is a market that everyone is trying to get a piece of. Having said that, uh, I, I do want to circle back to, to whether this is a fad or not. But let's talk about PayPal. So, they've got this deal to acquire, and, and we think it's Payd. <laughs> this is a Japanese company. We're going to go with the pronunciation Payd. So, as you mentioned, a $2.7 billion deal, uh, mostly in cash. I like this, Chris, because it gives PayPal a footprint in Japan where it can uh, pull more customers onto its platform. It's really a smallish deal for PayPal's balance sheet. The deal that we were just mentioning, so this is the Afterpay deal with Square, $29 billion deal. That was an all-stock deal. 
PayPal has this very solid balance sheet. It's not uh, a huge matter for them to fork over uh, close to three billion bucks in cash. What I like about PayPal's approach to this space is that they basically have turned on buy now, pay later, um, like a light switch in their own business. They're already entrenched with so many merchants and millions of customers around the globe. They started their own buy now, pay later service uh, just a few quarters ago. And Chris, it's on track for $6 billion in total payment volume. If you extrapolate from their most recent quarter within a year of starting. So, without having to buy another company or to advertise a service or to spend a lot of their own coin, they simply enable this service for their millions and millions of customers. And that business itself is exploding. Now, they've added on this piece in Japan, which is one of the largest e-commerce markets in the world. I think it's the third largest e-commerce market. So, this is a good logical entry for them, but they're not uh, trying to bet the farm on this phenomenon. And so, I'm going to pause here and get your thoughts. I'm curious, Chris, do you think this is here to stay, buy now, pay later as a financing method? Or is it maybe a fad that's gotten some jet fuel from stimulus payments that came around last year and, and earlier this year? I definitely think it's here to stay. I, I do wonder, though, about... Um, how do I put this? Uh, in the same way that we've seen over the past six months, uh, some people, uh, for whatever reason, get surprised that uh, in the retail industry, the year-over-year uh, -year digital sales growth starts to flatten because it skyrocketed in 2020 for all of the obvious reasons. Um, I, I hope no one is looking at the growth rates that we've seen recently in buy now, pay later, and assuming, well, this is just going to continue in a straight line. Um, I do think that you know this is going to backfire for some consumers. Um, the other thing I'll add is that you hear the phrase bolt-on acquisition now and then. This, to me, is the quintessential bolt-on acquisition. You know, this is um, this fits right in the PayPal ecosystem. Um, it is not a ton of money, as you said. They are keeping the brand. They are keeping the existing management at Payday. So, yeah, this is a perfect example of a bolt-on acquisition. I agree. I think the management team at PayPal are very shrewd allocators of capital. They tend to shy away from huge acquisitions, but they make a lot of acquisitions or a lot of investments, I should say, in small companies, especially in the fintech space. They basically have their own venture capital arm. This is a little bit bigger than that, but it's within character for them. And yeah, this is absolutely a great definition. If you hear that phraseology used, this is what it means. You bolt on a business that's complementary to your core revenue stream, that uh, which with some attention, can maybe help grow revenue and your bottom line in the coming years without you having to take too much of your capital uh, as, as risk capital. The thing that uh, PayPal, I think, does better than anyone else is to make it easy to open up ancillary services on their platform. They're coming up with a super app, which is basically an upgrade to uh, their app. But this is pr 
probably going to be one of the pieces that's front and center in the future when you log on to your new and improved PayPal app later this year, the buy now, pay later space. But but I want to go back to something that you alluded to, Chris. You, you were talking about, um, I think, this really huge digital spend that we've seen in the past few months. Expectations, I think, actually are sky high in the investment community. I think they may be unrealistic for the potential of buy now, pay later. One of the things that gives me pause is that the primary uh, group, demographic group that's driving buy now, pay later are younger consumers, millennial consumers and younger consumers who are wary of credit cards. They don't like debt. The issue that we might see with buy now, pay later in the future is a, a realization among some of these consumers who are averse to, to debt that this actually is a form of credit if you don't make those purchases on time. And I'll add to that, there was a really interesting survey earlier this year by LendingTree. They surveyed about a thousand Americans. Almost half of them said they wouldn't have made their purchase if they didn't have the option to finance. So it's a big, uh, bright compulsion when you're checking out and you see a buy now, pay later option a purchase you might have passed on, you decide to go ahead and make it because you can pay in installments. As time goes on, some of us might have the experience that this isn't really what we want to do and, and pull back. So maybe the market isn't destined to grow at this 20% clip in the coming years. But one thing we can say for sure with all these heavy hitters investing their billions in the space, as you said, it's here to stay. So we'll have fun watching it over the next several years. Asa Sharma, great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Okay, before wrapping up, I just wanted to take a couple minutes, share a couple of things about industry focus, because tomorrow, industry focus is going to have its 2000th episode. And the fact that industry focus got that far is a testament to the people who have done that show week in and week out, their dedication to doing the best possible show and helping listeners around the world. And what's great to me about Industry Focus is that it is a show that on paper should not work. You would not set out to design a show like Industry Focus. That's why there are no other shows like Industry Focus. Think about that for a second. There are no other shows like that one. There are plenty of other shows like this one. There are other shows that at their core are business news shows. There are a lot of business news shows out there. If you're looking for one, good news. You've got options. A lot of shows like Market Foolery. A lot of shows like Motley Fool Answers. Personal finance is a big space in podcasting. There are even shows like Rule Breaker Investing. There's no one like David Gardner, and God knows there are damn few people with his 25-plus year track record of investing. But the format of a single person sharing his or her insights and observations about the stock market, yes, there are other shows like that. There's no other show like Industry Focus, because you wouldn't design a show like that. And if you've been listening to that show since 2013, when it started, you already know it didn't start out that way. It started as a daily show about banking and financial services. It was the brainchild of David Hansen and Matt Kopenheffer. It was called Where the Money Is. It was five days a week, which I did not think would work. 
The Motley Fool had two podcasts at the time. I was hosting both of them. David and Matt came to me and said, we have this idea for a show. And they laid it out. And it was very clear to me they had thought it through. They had great programming ideas. And the only thing I really pushed them on was that it would be five days a week. I was like, maybe three days? Maybe start with three days. Because you don't want to get burnt out and then cut back from five. Maybe start with three. They wanted to do five. And they did. And it succeeded well beyond my expectations. And that is not a knock on Matt and David. I, I just thought, that's a single topic, banking, financial services. It's daily. I don't know how big that audience is. I knew they would find an audience. I knew there would be an audience. It was just a question of, well, how big is that audience? And it turns out that audience was four times bigger than I thought it was going to be, which is a tribute to David and Matt and how hard they worked. But about a year and a half after they launched the show, as happens at The Motley Fool, as our company grew, those guys got tapped to do other things, to take on bigger roles at the company. And it was clear that the show could not continue as it was. There weren't two other people as passionate and interested in banking and financial services as those two guys were. So we couldn't keep doing where the money is. But now we had this audience that they had built up. We didn't want to just give that up. So in 2014, we had a meeting to figure out how to program the show without David and Matt. And pretty quickly, we settled on this idea that different hosts could bring their own passion for the topics that they're interested in to the studio. And that's when Industry Focus was born. A couple of years after that, I was out at a bar in DC, I'd met up with my buddy Jim, and uh, he ended up leaving the bar before me. So I was just sitting at the bar, finishing my drink. And a guy comes in that I know, he works for a financial media company in DC. And we ended up chatting and uh, sitting at the bar. And he says, Oh, you know, we were talking about you guys the other day. I was like, Really? He's like, Yeah, we were, you know, we were talking about business podcasts and, you know, different producers and the motley fool came up and he starts talking about our shows and and at this point motley fool answers had launched so had rule breaker investing with david gardner and this guy mentions each one and you know says something nice and and then he gets to industry focus and he says hey what's the deal with that show and i said oh it, it's a different industry every day so monday is banking and financial service and i start describing the show and he cuts me off he says no i know what the show is but what's the story, you know? Now, keep in mind, we're sitting at a bar. Um, and, you know, it's not like if you're ever sitting at a bar and you're on a date with someone and you're, you're facing them. We're just two guys sitting at a bar, mainly looking straight ahead. And that thing where you kind of look to your side, you sort of turn slightly to the person you're next to. So I wasn't really looking him like right in the eye. He's like, you know, what's the story with that show? And, and I was sort of confused. So, so I turned to look at him. You know, what's the deal with that show? And now I can see the look on his face. And I realize what he's really asking is, why does that show work? How come people listen to industry focus? Why is that show consistently, you know, ranked among the most listened to business shows on Apple Podcasts? And God help me, it made me so happy <laughs> that this guy and his coworkers were in their office talking about industry focus. And they're smart people, but they couldn't figure out why the show works. And I'm, and I'm not 
trying to knock this guy because I have had a version of that conversation a bunch of times since then, usually at podcast conventions, talking with other people from other production companies. Again, on paper, it should not work. That's why there are no other shows like it. No one is out there saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do our version of industry focus. It shouldn't work, but it does. And the reason it does is because of the smarts and the dedication and the flat-out work, the effort of people like Jason Moser, Emily Flippin, Nick Seipel, Dylan Lewis, Asit Sharma, Matt Frankel, Brian Feraldi, and before them, people like Shannon Jones and Sarah Priestley and Christine Hargis and the other hosts and guests over the years, and engineers like Austin Morgan and Tim Sparks. That's why Industry Focus works. That's why tomorrow they're going to have their 2,000th episode. And I salute them because uh, there's only one way you get to 2,000 episodes. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Forward. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.